This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, gaining a better understanding of how human trafficking happens. The mindset we have to get out of thinking, because I live in a good neighborhood, that it's not going to happen to me or my kids. It's much more complicated than that. Plus, free infrastructure you can use to level up your skills. You're not paying tuition. You're not buying a whole bunch of books just to see if you're interested. That's what the library is for. And if you're not interested in, you know, say our information technology program, we can point you in the right direction for our heavy equipment operating program. And making city infrastructure attracting and equitable. Well, why do we need a bridge when we don't have a grocery store? And what about what's going to happen when this park comes? What is it going to mean to our community? Examining development elsewhere to inform what could be next here. First, the news from NPR. Black-owned NWA presents the Black-owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo, Saturday, August 26th from 5 to 9 p.m. at the Fayetteville Town Center. Guests are invited to come learn about and shop with black business owners from across the region. The event includes a 50 years of hip-hop celebration and more. Details available at blackownednwa.org or eventbrite.com. It is Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. This is KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. We'll talk about infrastructure, big and small, later. You can use virtual reality at the Fayetteville Public Library to learn about HVAC, electrical work, plumbing, and many other skills. And as Northwest Arkansas continues to grow, what does it mean to grow equitably and responsibly? This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas explores smart infrastructure. First this Tuesday, numbers from the National Human Trafficking Hotline report nearly 1,500 trafficking victims have been identified in Arkansas since 2007. Now, state and federal agencies are putting more resources to stop exploitation, help victims, and prosecute more offenders. But the biggest hurdle for agencies is often addressing misconceptions about human trafficking. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. In 2019, the FBI Satellite Office in Fayetteville stepped up efforts to address exploitation and sex trafficking of minors, specifically in northwest Arkansas. According to the FBI office in Little Rock, the agency worked 31 cases of child exploitation or human trafficking in the state that year, and by 2020, that number jumped to 106. The most recent numbers from 2021 showed 67 child exploitation cases were filed. Brennan Despain is the special agent in charge of the Arkansas Child Exploitation and Human Trafficking Task Force in Fayetteville. He says while the actual number of cases of trafficking victims can be hard to quantify, he believes the problem is prevalent but may look different from what people imagine. And so the way that I try and explain it to the community is we have dedicated officers that are working at full time that kind of gives an indication of how prevalent it is. And I believe it's always been this way. It's just that we've gotten better as a community at identifying it and addressing it. Yeah. And when you talk about that identification and the exponential growth, can you can you break down why we're able to identify that maybe better or what ways you've seen it or were able to track it better or the way that it's grown more? Can you just break that down a little bit? I can. I think some of this is attributed to the fact that the different stakeholders have addressed it um, differently in the past. 
and not always in the right way. So speaking from a law enforcement perspective, I think that we've missed a lot of flags in the past, a lot of identifiers. And an example is in the past, a lot of these cases were worked as a possession of child sexual abuse material or domestic violence or a sexual assault. Nowadays, we're looking at it from the perspective that it actually may be trafficking in addition to those elements. Another thing that has helped out is that our community outside of law enforcement has gotten much better at, at identifying it, reporting it. I think the confidence in the community that grows as they learn that law enforcement has done something about it. Specifically, if you look at what the task force has done in the past two years specifically, there have been three traffickers that have been put in prison. And the amount of attention that those cases have received from the community, especially those that have either been victim or no victims, that contributes a lot to the confidence that they can bring it to someone's attention and someone will take it seriously. Yeah. And can you break down just, you know, or define, you know, human trafficking and the types of cases that you see and look at here in Northwest Arkansas? What are those? And is there a specific one that's most prevalent here? When we talk about trafficking, we break it down into labor trafficking, which is the compulsion of someone to work. And it's usually done through force, fraud, or coercion. And the other type of trafficking is sex trafficking, which is also through force, fraud, or coercion, but it forces them into commercial sex activity. That force, fraud, or coercion element is not required when we have juveniles. So anybody that's 17 or younger, there's no, there's no consent. So that sex trafficking with an adult, we have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. With a minor, we do not. So we see both of those cases, sex trafficking and labor trafficking, both exist in Northwest Arkansas. And specifically, one of the things that we've identified roughly since January 1st of this year is the cases of labor trafficking. And that's typically what we're seeing is um, migrants, usually undocumented minors that are relocated to a sponsor's home but they disappear, they fall through the cracks, they don't go to school, they're, they're not functioning the way like a 14, a 15, a 16 year old typically do. And we've had several cases and I believe that we're kind of scratching the surface. Those kids are working in places like restaurants or construction sites and that would be a form of that, that's typically what we're seeing for labor trafficking in the area. Sex trafficking, both adult and minors, um, and you break that down into familial trafficking, which is when someone in the family members facilitates it, and then the typical pimp trafficking. Um, those are the three cases I referenced earlier, where it's a pimp that uses different techniques to force adults and minors into commercial sex. And when you're looking at, you know, these cases, especially when it comes to like labor trafficking, I'm wondering what policy is in place uh, to address that here in Arkansas and if things like the the new, I guess, labor laws that have lowered ages here in the state, have those contributed to, I don't know, have they muddied the waters at all? That's a, a topic that we've discussed. Annie Smith is kind of at the forefront of, of that. I don't know if there's a correlation between that. Typically, what I'm seeing with labor trafficking is kids that are those that undocumented minor category, they don't have family, they're being placed with sponsors 
And for whatever reason, there is not a system in place to make sure that those kids are receiving the benefits that they that they need, that they're going to school, that, you know, I don't know if that's, I'm assuming that's the U.S. government that places them. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother situation that is outside of our control. And then, you know, because I know that you work with a lot of local agencies and organizations and try to kind of spread awareness about these things. So what, when you talk to people who maybe would be on the forefront of seeing these or identifying uh, human trafficking, because I think for most of us, we have a certain idea or image of what that would look like, and it might not be the case. So what are the, what tips or tools do you give people to be able to identify this? So when I give a presentation, I typically ask everyone in the group whether they've seen the movie Taken. And if you've seen it, it's a story about a dad that loses his daughter in East Europe and basically kidnapping and forced drug use. And most people in the audience understand they they know that reference. They've seen that movie or heard about it. And that is not what trafficking looks like in Northwest Arkansas. So one of the things that is is complicated is it's not as simple as a white van going around a neighborhood kidnapping kids. The term grooming, we throw that grooming around like everyone understands what it means, but grooming of children and adults into this life, it's a process. And there are certain categories of people that do a really good job at identifying um, situations in which a child may be trafficked, and that's people at schools and school officials and teachers. If you look at what happened during COVID when the schools were shut down, the reporting dropped dramatically. Kids who were being exploited didn't have an opportunity or less of an opportunity to share that or to report that to someone. And so when we talk about the different groups that those that see that school teachers are one of them, therapists, there's a lot of different categories. Um, And part of the process of this initiative to combat human trafficking in Northwest Arkansas is to constantly engage with these organizations so that they know that there's an avenue to report this when they come across that. And we've made huge progress in this area over the past five years. Yeah. And going back to, you know, the the growth of, I guess, human trafficking, maybe it's not actually going up or we're just being able to identify it more, but are there sectors or, or new areas that you guys are looking at? Maybe it's through technology. Or are there certain ways that you see this evolving that you're now trying to identify and, and catch on the forefront? Experts in this arena talk about a continuum of exploitation and basically it's kind of a chart in what happens to a lot of the victims in which it starts with certain grooming traits, sexual abuse, domestic violence, and then it continues on until the point that they are groomed and recruited into commercial sex. And uh, one of the things that I talk about is, for example, in that, in that group with the, the landlords association, a lot of them wanted to know where this was happening. Can you tell us a neighborhood where this is happening and it's not that simple. Trafficking is most prevalent, and it's not necessarily tied to a location, but it's more so associated with victims who are more susceptible to being groomed. And so the mindset, we have to get out of thinking, because I live in a good neighborhood, that it's not going to happen to me or my kids. It's, it's much more complicated than that. One of the things that I've learned, this has been, this has been a huge Um, learning curve for me and growth in my own career. But one of the things 
that I've learned is a term that we've referred to as adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. These are things that happen to individuals, happen to kids in which um, something traumatic happens. Um, Drug use in the home, suicide of a family member, domestic violence, emotional abuse. All these things contribute to someone going from being a normal 14-year-old to end up being susceptible and being recruited into commercial sex. Um, the reason why we, I try and stay away from telling people it's in a certain neighborhood is we can address the prevention if we're looking at those that are more susceptible to being groomed versus looking at a specific location. That was FBI Special Agent Brennan Despain speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. Daniel's work for Ozarks at Large takes place in the Karen Taha News Studio. On the next episode of the Beloved Community Podcast, from the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF. Chris and Lindsay sit down with a man well-known in Fayetteville as an educator, leader, friend, mentor, and advocate, Dr. John Colbert. You know, we did the inclusion yes. way back yes. <laughs> when I was a little teacher. Before inclusion even became, you know, mandatory, yes. I yes. started that at Base Elementary. Yes. Because, again, I wanted what was best for all students. And I know my students could succeed with that additional help that I knew that I could provide and, and my fellow teachers could provide. Reflecting on a life of service with Dr. John Colbert on the next episode of The Beloved Community. You can listen for free at KUAF.com or subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Later on the show, our militant grammarian often shares with us the right words for the right usage. Today, she offers examples of words we use correctly that develop because someone before us was mistaken. But the word algorithm is a mistranslation of the name of a 9th century Persian mathematician. It was Latinized to be algorithmi. So one of the fundamental terms in the field of mathematics come from, comes from a mispronunciation of a name. Existing words that were either mistakes or just made up. Catherine Sheralds, our militant grammarian, is with us later. Every day, you hear lots of news on Ozarks at Large. But... Have you ever wanted to test your listening skills? Now you can with KUAF's Word Puzzle. It's just like your other favorite daily word games that feature five-letter words and color-based hints. But you might even get a hint from the previous day's Ozarks at Large broadcast. Go to KUAF's website or newsword.org slash KUAF to start playing daily puzzles now. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Anna Pope. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders issued an executive order yesterday updating a range of issues around the state's water policy. This is the fourth iteration of the Arkansas Water Plan. Sanders says this is the first update in nearly a decade, and it's needed to account for the growing needs of small and large communities within the state. The plan will be implemented in two phases. The first is to determine changes from the previous plan from 2014. A work plan schedule and estimated costs should be done in a year. Phase two will include updates reflecting current water demands, an evaluation of surface and groundwater, 
resilience assessment, a structural analysis of flood mitigation infrastructure, and a breakdown of water management policies. A status report on Phase 2 is expected at the end of 2024. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson will be part of tomorrow night's Republican Party debate. Republican National Committee last night included Hutchinson as one of the eight qualifying participants. Construction on a new semiconductor chip facility has begun at the University of Arkansas. A groundbreaking event was held on Friday for the almost 18,700-square-foot multi-user silicon carbide research and fabrication facility, or MUSIC. Alan Mantooth, Distinguished Professor of Electrical Engineering and Music's Principal Investigator, says it will fill a gap, allowing organizations to develop low-volume production of chips and can scale up to high-volume manufacturing. The $36 million facility is expected to be completed in January 2025. Cox Communications recently announced it will award more than $80,000 to 16 nonprofits throughout the KUAF listening area. The funding comes from an employee-funded investment program within the company. In a statement, Cox's Arkansas Market Vice President Tina Gabbard says the money awarded to the organizations is more important than ever because of high inflation and other rising costs. The list of nonprofits includes Ability Tree Arkansas, based in Siloam Springs, Boys and Girls Club of the Diamond Hills in Alma, Jack Williams Veteran Resources Center, based in Harrison, Antioch for Youth and Family, based in Fort Smith, and many more. You can find the full list of nonprofits at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is proposing to list the salamander mussel as an endangered species. The freshwater mussel is found across 14 different states in the U.S., including Arkansas and Missouri. An assessment from the Fish and Wildlife Service shows there are 66 known existing populations of salamander mussels, and about 80 percent of them are at high risk from one or more primary threats. A 60-day comment period opens today for residents to provide more data and information about salamander mussels in their region. And the Northwest Arkansas Naturals are opening a 12-game homestand tonight at Arvis Ballpark in Springdale. This week, the Naturals play Tulsa. Then they host Springfield next week. The Nats start the homestand a half game out of first place. This is Ozarks at Large. It's well known you can use your public library to learn about almost anything. That's been the case for a long time. But in 2023, libraries offer so many more ways to learn than just the printed word. The Fayetteville Public Library Center of Innovation can start you on a path toward a new career with virtual reality, heavy equipment simulators, and even a learning kitchen. Melissa Taylor, the manager of the library's Center for Innovation, says there will be a free introductory session to the center to learn more Wednesday night at 6 o'clock at the library. And that's where we're going to get people onboarded, answer any of their questions, and go over program requirements to get them started. And that 
the idea there is to not be intimidated. You can walk in with little or no knowledge about this, right? Exactly. Um, our goal is to provide these educational and training resources to everyone, no matter where they're at in their educational process. So we have a lot of really great community partners. Um, one, for example, is our Fayetteville Public Schools Adult Education Department. They have been truly integral to making this program a success by helping us evaluate our participants and uh, making sure that they have the very basic skills needed to be successful in these programs. So a great example is um, I don't think it'd be very helpful to set someone up uh, for a really intensive computer coding training course if they don't have a basic grasp of certain mathematical, uh, you know, understandings and certain language understandings to actually go forward with that. So if there are any gaps in education, we're going to have them work with our adult education team and um, get them to where they need to be to be successful in our program. So this program is literally for anyone. If they need a GED, we can connect them to our adult education program. program providers. And if they are an ESL learner, we're going to send them to our adult education partners as well. And all of this is happening in-house at the Fayetteville Public Library. How much does it cost to register? It's free. That's one of the great things about uh, being a librarian and working for the public libraries is that everything's free that we're offering to the community. Um, I will say this is important, that this program is actually um, supported by ARPA funding that came from the generous um, support from the city of Fayetteville. So we're very excited that they've been so open and willing to support our mission and impacting the community like we are. What if I live in Elkins? Oh, good point. So the great thing about the Fayetteville Public Library is we recently expanded our offerings to, um, to anyone in our community in the greater Northwest Arkansas area. So if you live in one of the cities or towns that border Fayetteville, you're in. If you live in Washington County, you're in. If you have a Bentonville, Springdale, or Rogers Public Library card, you are in. Even better, if for some reason you live beyond those borders, you can still get a library card from Fayetteville Public Library. Um, There is a fee. It's $60 a year, which is pretty cheap for all the amazing access we're, we're providing. But if for some reason that fee is a barrier, we have a scholarship opportunity as well, and they can fill out a form, and we can see about getting them a free library card. This is like no excuses <laughs> right here. Exactly. Um, it's kind of a one-stop shop. And the way we've built our programs is people can learn at their own pace, learn on their own time. And we're really trying to break down barriers. So if patrons are experiencing issues with you know, getting access to high-speed internet to get onto some of these programs, a lot are online learning opportunities. We provide them access to our computer coding and training lab. If they um, need access to support and learning, we provide them access with our simulated learning coordinator, who is an educator by, by background in education, too, which is fabulous to have on our team. And we really have everything to get people started and going in the right direction and leveling up their skills. I have a full-time job. I'm interested in this. Am I taking someone else's space if I'm coming in? No, you're really not. Um, we have room for everyone in our community to participate in this program. And specifically, those people who are working full-time are those who are trying to target. You know, um, more specifically, if anyone was impacted by the pandemic, um, maybe they lost their job due to the pandemic, maybe they realized that there are some issues in their fields that were maybe amplified by the pandemic. We're seeing a lot of that. Um, and people are just learning to learning what they want to do in the future and looking for opportunities to change fields without a whole lot of skin in the game, so to speak. You know, you're not paying tuition. You're not buying a whole bunch of books just to see if you're interested. That's what the library is for. And if you're not interested in, you know, say, our information technology program, 
we can point you in the right direction for our heavy equipment operating program. If that doesn't seem like a good fit for you, we can try to point you in the right direction for our culinary arts certification programs as well. So there's something for nearly everyone. A lot of this is online learning, so it can be adaptable to your schedule? Exactly. So a lot of this is online learning with in-person components, check-ins, support sessions, and we are even slowly but surely offering some more in-person classes. Um, So starting in September, people can come in and learn to um, video game design using an open source platform called Unity every Saturday in September. So that'll be really great. And um, But beyond that, they are all mostly online and self-paced. So again, they can use our computers at the library. They can use computers at home and get this education wherever they're at. Machines, items that you will be learning about include? Oh my gosh. Um, our simulation lab is pretty amazing. Uh, a big focus of our simulation lab and our learning program is our heavy equipment operating program, which utilizes CAT certified simulators and CAT developed curriculum um, to learn how to operate heavy equipment machi- machinery. So that includes things like the hydraulic excavator, a backhoe, a loader, a grader and a bulldozer. All of these machines have, you know, what we call OEM components. So what you're learning on the machine is going to directly uh, translate into the real world experiences. And um, getting to, you know, get into a, a machine and use it also just gets people introduced to a new field that's hands on and helps them figure things out without having to, you know, invest fully and invest a lot of time and effort and money into those kinds of things. And VR. And VR. Oh, my goodness. So our VR studio is really where all the magic happens for our skilled trades training program. Uh, we're using an online and virtual reality instruction mode to, um, to teach things like HVAC, plumbing, wow. facilities maintenance, construction, and more. We can also offer industry certifications like OSHA. OSHA 10 is one of them. Um, the EPA 608 certification for uh, HVAC technicians, as well as the Nate Ready to Work certificate for HVAC workers as well. When did you get involved in library science? When did, when did this become something that you thought you might do? Oh, my gosh. Um, in high school, actually. I'm what they call a lifer in the library world. Um, you know, being a weird kid, I stumbled upon <laughs> libraries, as we do, and just kind of found my place there. And um, I've been doing this for nearly all of my adult life. And uh, a few years ago, I finally broke down and got my master's in library science, where I focus on emerging technologies, because that's the future. That's where we're heading. And I feel like this emerging technology world really impacts the community on a broader scale and highlights, you know, the innovative opportunities and innovative programming that library brings, libraries are bringing to life. Um, we're not your grandmother's library anymore. We still have books. We still have really great database you know, resources, but we have so much more. We're not your older sister's library anymore. Even that, absolutely. Yeah. We're not the same library um, that I was involved in when I was in high school in the early 2000s and late 90s. I mean, I have watched everything change. I remember checking out VHSs and having to re- rewind them before I could put them back on the shelf. You know, <laughs> We had cartridge video games we were checking out of the library. Lots of things have changed. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. When you were first getting interested in libraries and what they could do, there's no way you could think about what's happening across the street from this studio. No, I feel like we were just ac- you know, just offering access to the internet back then. I mean, we were really just dipping our feet into the technology world. Card catalogs were still a thing. We were just, just changing into a digital catalog system as well. So I want to say things have happened fast, but also just naturally as well. And I, one last thing. I 
want to point out, I think some people who maybe haven't been to a library sometime might be intimidated when they go in and find there isn't a card catalog or you can check out at a kiosk. I want to say that if you're at Fayetteville Public Library, and I think this is the case for all libraries in this region, if you have a question, there are people, no one's going to make fun of you if you say, how do I use this? No, no, absolutely not. Um, we have a lot of really great skilled library staff and professional librarians on hand to answer all of those crazy questions. I mean, public libraries are an interesting place to work. I, I won't get into the stories now, but if you know a librarian, ask them. They have some really great stories to share. But um, we're here to help still. We're still doing those basic reference support. We're still helping people use a computer. Um, the library is the place to go to have non-judgmental information access needs met. We don't judge, we don't ask why you want a piece of material or why you're looking for a certain subject. We're just there to provide it to you. Thank you for that, and thanks for coming in. Of course, thank you for having me. Melissa Taylor is the manager of the Center of Innovation at the Fayetteville Public Library. The free introductory session to the center is Wednesday night, beginning at 6 at the Fayetteville Public Library. More information can be found at faylib.org, and we have a direct link to the Level Up Skills Development page at ozarksatlarge.com. Do you have an old car sitting around, and are you looking for a hassle-free way to get rid of it while making a tax-deductible charitable contribution? Donate it to KUAF. We work with cars, charitable adult rides, and services to provide you with this unique way to support our programs. All you have to do is call 855-500-RIDE. That's 855-500-7433. Or visit careasy.org and schedule a pickup. As a city or region grows, it changes. That's inevitable. But the kind of change can be determined by the quality of planning behind it. Earlier this summer, the Northwest Arkansas Council devoted one of its Future Is Now speaking events to an example of community and city collaborating to make sure change didn't result in displacement. That project, the 11th Street Bridge Park in Washington, D.C. The roundtable in June was moderated by Megan Kimball of the New York Times, who wrote about the project for the Times. Before the public conversation, Randy Wilburn, host of the podcast I Am Northwest Arkansas, talked with her, as well as Scott Kratz, the director of the 11th Street Bridge Project, Vaughn Perry, director of Skyland Workforce Center in D.C., and Kimon Freeman, a co-founder of We Act Radio. Megan Kimball told Randy she discovered the 11th Street Bridge Park when she was working on a book about urban highways. And was looking for examples of highway removals where people did a really, you know, whoever was in charge of that highway removal did a prioritize engaging the community and doing equitable development around that removal. Because as many of your listeners might know, when we built urban highways in the 50s and 60s, ran those highways through Black communities, largely had no community engagement or input whatsoever. And so I was really looking for an example of the reverse of that. As we remove these structures that had divided our communities, how are people restitching divided places. And so that was sort of what I just emailed Scott Kratz out of the blue one day um, and got talking to him and was really impressed by the thoughtfulness of this infrastructure reuse project and how far in advance they had been doing, you know, putting real investments into the community in advance of doing any infrastructure work at all. Um, And I think that became sort of increasingly important and urgent when President Biden, you know, allocated a whole lot of money to building new infrastructure across the country is how do we think about these assets, not just as physical ones, but as social and community assets. And I think the 11th Street Bridge Park really struck me as someone that was attempting that, was really making a good faith effort to grapple with questions of gentrification and displacement and equitable development. Yeah. I mean, there's so many 
there's so many pieces to that whole story as I was reading it. And I'm just like, oh man, I'm just, my head was racing with looking at the ways that different people that were part of the community viewed that bridge project and what it looked like. And so, I'm, and I'm glad I have some of the principles in this room. And so, Scott, why don't I have you just for the audience share a little bit about this whole idea because you were right at the genesis of of this bridge project. I, it's been my honor to be there from the beginning for the last 12 years. In DC, we had this old freeway bridge that was built in the 1960s that came to the end of its lifespan. This is the bridge that went over the Anacostia River. And for those who might not know Washington, D.C., the Anacostia River is a dividing line by every way that you could measure it, by race, by income, by even life expectancy, right? There's a 14.7 year difference in life expectancy based where you are in the bridge, which is bananas, right? That's not So this idea when this old bridge was coming down that we could build something new, something better, and was really driven and centered by the community, I think was the key goal for the project. So the old span came down, they left the old piers, and then we're building a new deck that's on top, but one that will no longer hold cars or tractor trailers, but that will hold community-generated programming spaces to physically and metaphorically bridge these two communities. Yeah. And I think, you know, you actually had quite a couple of what were what were some of for you when you first came up with this idea and as and you worked with others it wasn't just you alone but what was what what else was an inspiration for you had you seen anything elsewhere where you're like you know I've always said there's nothing new there's nothing new under the sun right and I think a lot of times we just need to see and witness certain things happen before we can make them happen ourselves and so was there something that you specifically saw where you were like man we need to bring that back to DC yeah and to give credit where credit was due the original idea came from the then DC office of planning director a woman by the name of Harriet Drugoning and this was a time when the High Line in New York had just opened right the an old aged out elevated train track that was you know quite the darling of the architectural press and can still to this day, I mean, there's more visitors that visit the High Line than the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right? I mean, something like 5 million visitors a year visit there. So it began this larger thinking of instead of getting rid of all this old infrastructure, how do we extend the life of this initial federal investment and rethink it? And certainly there's lots of lessons we've learned from the High Line and hopefully lots of lessons that people are continuing to learn from the 11th Street Bridge Park. Yeah. And I mean, and then, you know, from the High Line, we've got what is it, the Belt Line in Atlanta? So we're kind of seeing that. I mean, it's it's weird because like all these places that I've lived, I lived in Atlanta, I lived in D.C., they all just changed over time with a little bit of inspiration and people kind of rolling up their sleeves saying, we're going to make this better than how we found it. We're now tracking over 170 of these transformed infrastructure into civic spaces across North America. And it's not just in the U.S. There's some in Canada, there's some in Mexico. So and increasingly, we're, we're trying, we connect. There's actually a, a larger group called the Highline Network that meets on a regular basis that we can really learn from each other because we all shouldn't be making the same mistakes at the same time across the country, right? We should really figure out how to do this right. And a huge emphasis of the Highline Network is learning from lessons of the Highline and to do this, again, centered in the community, but also think about the intended and sometimes unintended consequences of these types of projects. Yeah. Vaughn, can you just kind of share your part in all of this and yeah. So one of the things Scott hasn't had a chance to talk about was, so we talked more around like the project and us redesigning this park, but the fact that from the very beginning, we went into the community to ask the community, is this something that you even want? Yeah. And from that, there were more conversations around like, okay, if this is something you want, 
tell us what you want and tell us what the programming should be like. Tell us what types of stores you want. And then then there, there was this bigger concern around, well, why do we need a bridge when we don't have a grocery store? And what about what's going to happen when this park comes? What is it going to mean to our community? Yeah. And so one of the things that we started to do was to have these conversations with community members to really go to them to say, all right, like we don't want this development to cause displacement. And so community help us to figure out what some of those solutions can be. And so from those conversations, we have what's called our equitable development plan. It's about 40 plus strategies that are made up of housing strategies, cultural equity, small business and workforce. We're actually going through our third version right now that's going to include health and wellness strategies. But basically, they are solutions and feedback that we have received from stakeholders, mainly community residents, but faith-based organizations, business leaders, small business organizations, and looking at ways that we can make sure that the investment that is going into the bridge is going to benefit the residents that live in our community now. Yeah. And and I'm glad you mentioned, you mentioned a number of different aspects of this process, the least of which, of course, is, is workforce development, right? A lot of times when we talk about building and infrastructure, we say, oh, well, that's just going to provide jobs. But, you know, every project that I've ever seen comes to an end at some point in time, right? I mean, well, the big dig in Boston, that's a whole nother story. But the bottom line is all of these major infrastructure projects do come to an end. And then it's like, well, what what next? And so you working in the workforce development area, you guys really look long and hard at this and how this would impact jobs mm-hmm. in the in the area above and beyond the project itself. In your estimation, is it going to make a really big dent in the job availability in the Anacostia area? I think right now, I mean, we're even we're seeing indirectly it's already having an impact. Sure. When we look at the construction of the bridge, it's going to allow for, you know, a number of jobs that's specific to building the bridge. Our goal is that we can have as many of those jobs, not just from Washington, D.C. residents, but more specifically, Scott was talking about the separation between east and west of the Anacostia River, more specifically from the east of the river residents. But then we're also looking at what jobs are going to happen after the park is built, right? So whether it's somebody that's um, working in retail or somebody that's taking care of the landscape architecture or somebody that's taking care of some of the stormwater features, branching outside of the park, are there businesses that are going to need more staff because they're going to be increased traffic? And how can we support those small businesses and make sure that the people that they are able to hire have the skills that are necessary to succeed? And so we expect that it can have a tremendous impact in the community. And I think only time will tell, you know, within the next 10, 15, 20 years, how much of an impact it's able to have. Yeah. And, and I think what's really key, just building on Vaughn's point, the, the key is thinking intentionally with the community at the center, but really early, right? We know what mm-hmm. happens if you don't have a level of intentionality. We've seen that happen in Washington, D.C. in multiple neighborhoods, right? We've seen that the, in cities across the United States. So we haven't broken ground yet. And we've already invested $86 million in the nearby community. That doesn't include the bricks and mortar of building the park, right? That's going directly into a community land trust, into a home buyers club that's seen 122 east of the river renters become homeowners, capturing generational wealth. 
right? There's over 150 residents who are now employed in construction jobs, right? Millions of dollars into Black-owned businesses east of the river. So thinking about like that timing, I can't emphasize that enough, that timing is really critical, right? There's a great the line that like, when's the best time to plant a tree? It's like 50 years ago. When's right. the second best time to plant a tree today? today yeah. Right. So thinking about this work really intentionally is key because we want to make sure that the tens of thousands of residents who've shaped every single element of this park are the ones that can benefit from it. You can hear this entire episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas with Randy Wilburn at KUAF.com, IamNorthwestArkansas.com, or by subscribing to the podcast. The Northwest Arkansas Council's next The Future Is Now event it's August 30th at the Jones Center in Springdale. The discussion will include conversations about affordable housing construction and community-focused finance solutions for workforce housing. You can learn more about it at nwacouncil.org. This is Ozarks at Large with me. I'm Milton Grimary and Catherine Sherlds. Welcome back. Thanks. Kyle, English adopts lots of words from other languages. And as anyone who has listened to my trying to read non-English words, mispronunciation <laughs> can be a problem. Yeah. Rather than acknowledge the mistranslations or miscommunications, English speakers tend to double down and embrace the problem, creating new words all on their own. Okay. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> So thanks to WordGenius.com, we're going to look at some words that were invented by mistake. Okay. Words that we use, but they, they were mistakes. Okay. Okay, Kyle, the word algorithm has become more common lately because of all the concern about social media. What do algorithms have to do with social media? Well, they figure out what you're looking at and, and hone in. I hope I use that correctly. And they, uh, <laughs> they narrow what is seen. To you, they figure you out. Mm -hmm. Word Genius explains it as a set process with clear steps to arrive at the right answer. So uh, they, through computer mm -hmm. programming, they get right. the right answer that way. But the word algorithm is a mistranslation of the name of a ninth-century Persian mathematician. It was Latinized to be algorithmi. Okay. So one of the fundamental terms in the field of mathematics come from, comes from a mispronunciation of a name. How about that? How about that? <laughs> Kyle, I'm sure you're familiar with the old English style of penmanship that confuses us modern folk, especially with what letters? Oh. Think of a, like a, a Magna Carta right. poster it's, or something. Is it the S's yes. get replaced or seemingly replaced with... Like an F? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. F's and S's, yes. So this figures into how we mistakenly named an involuntary human response to, say, too much pollen in the air. A sneeze? Yes. The Old English word phenicin <laughs> means to snort. Mm. With confusion between the letter S and the letter F, phenician turned into sneeshin, and from there we arrive at sneeze. Okay. <laughs> I like sneeze better than Phoenicia. <laughs> yeah, me too. 
uh, it sounds almost like something you would say as you're sneezing. Mm, Right, yes. (laughs) The next word is certainly one we Arkansas people are familiar with. What is our regional equivalent of hurricanes, Kyle? Like a a tornado? Yeah. You're telling me that's an accidental word? Yes. Huh. A tornado is a flurry of winds, and it's close enough to the Spanish words tronada, which means thunder, and tornar, which means to turn. The combination of these two created the word tornado. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Because, I mean, obviously, I think the United States is the leader in tornadoes, right? They probably weren't that common. Why would it be? I don't know enough about uh, the climate that that would be. I I mean, you have typhoons, but I know that whenever there's a tornado in London, it all heck breaks loose on the internet because it doesn't happen that often. The middle part of the United States seems to have by far the most. It has something to do with the weather forecasters, I think. Okay. (laughs) Okay, but anyway, it's a made-up word, accidentally made-up word. (laughs) Now, we've talked a little bit about back formations. Do you remember what they are? I don't. It's when a word is formed from an already existing word from which it appears to be a derivative often by the renew- removal of a suffix, such as lays from lazy, mm. or edit from editor, is actually a back formation. Oh. Oh. So the word editor existed, and then they had to come up with a verb. What does he do? Well, he now, edits. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Verb, yeah. Okay. So are you as surprised as I am that the word P, as in princess and the, uh-huh. is a back formation? Yeah, because I don't know what it would be back formed out of. <laughs> The original was peas, P-E-A-S-E. Really? <laughs> yeah, like please without the L. Uh-huh. With the plural being pisin, P-E-S-E-N. However, peas, P-E-A-S-E, was mistaken for what do you think? Peace. No. no a, a form of the word pea. Peas, if I said give me your peas, yeah. would you think it's just one? No. You think plural, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So everybody was mistaking peas for oh. the plural. Oh, that makes sense to me. And so people quickly became used to calling the singular P. Now, outside of researchers, <laughs> how often do you have to refer to a single P? I mean, uh, Princess and the P. <laughs> okay, all right. That. But you don't go into, I don't know, Golden Corral. Pea shooter. Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Okay. You win. You don't get them at. Uh, yeah, you do get them at Golden Corral. I don't know. But I, I was thinking. You uh, never go Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> but you don't. Right. But pea shooter is a prime example. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you're yeah. right. I mean, it's usually plural. Yeah. Yeah. Kyle, you may know the, that French was one of the more dominant languages throughout Europe in the Middle Ages. I did know that. Yes. In French, the word la mission. Mm-hmm which means military weapons, but it was heard incorrectly by English speech, speakers as what, do you think? Well, ammunition. Yeah. Lam- the la mission. Ammunition, yeah. yeah. And that's the word we use today. Kyle, I'm familiar with this type of af- alcohol, but ne- not sure if I've ever drunk it. But from your dad's bartender career, mm-hmm. maybe you can name this type of alcohol from Spain Sometimes sweet and always strong. 
Sherry? Yes. Okay. The hint I was going to give you is that Niles and Fraser drink it a yes, lot. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think of it in those little sort of, not a flute, but a very... Uh, a little small. Yeah. yeah. The name is commonly believed to be a misinterpretation of the Spanish vino de Xerxes, mm. which is the region where Sherry originates. It sounds like a pretty big stretch to me, yeah. but <laughs> Xerxes, I guess, to I mean, Sherry. Right? If you're on your fourth glass of Sherry, you might begin to hear it Very a little bit differently. Yes. <laughs> okay. Chasse is a French ballet term, Kyle. Sure. Meaning to move across the floor and then to jump and bring your feet together. You've mastered that, haven't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you've heard the word. Yeah, I, I always think of sachet, but... Well, that's the, that's the confusion. Oh. Uh, the English word that came from a mispronunciation of chasse is sachet. Right. Which means a sassy dance-like walk. Right. And they're two, di- two different movements, totally. Totally. Interesting. Sachet and, ch- and chasse. Kyle, when you hear the word varsity, what do you think of? I think of a, a, ho- a high school or college team. Gotcha. Well, stop after high school. Oh? Do you hear varsity in college much? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Well, you and our listeners might be surprised to know that the word actually comes from university. Hmm. It's a shortening and misspelling of the word based on an archaic pronunciation. So the lesson here, Kyle, is if you mispronounce a word regularly, just keep it up, (laughs) and maybe it'll become part of the English language. I like it. Catherine Sherlds is our militant grammarian. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the expansion of a state highway that turned into a massive archaeological dig. What, What makes the site significant is not really the artifacts, but the structures, the house floors, the posts, the fire hearths. So we have evidence of the actual structure of the community. Ozark at Large's Jacqueline Froelich takes us on a field report to rural Washington County. That story and much more tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. on KUAF Public Radio. Next month, the Arkansas Natural Sky Association will host the Arkansas Dark Sky Festival on Bear Creek near the Buffalo River. This swath of land is the state's only recognized international dark sky park. The festival will feature Dr. Amber Strawn discussing her research using the James Webb Space Telescope. Amber is an Arkansas native and an alum of the University of Arkansas. In April 2022, she came back to her alma mater, and while here, she came to the Anthony and Susanoy News Studio to discuss how a dark sky in rural Arkansas helped fuel her interest in what's up above us. Growing up in Bee Branch, actually, I grew up under a really dark sky, and so I feel like that sort of got me my start in astronomy. And so from the time I was a kid, I was looking up at the sky, the stars, asking questions. And I was always interested in big questions. And that eventually led to me studying how galaxies change over cosmic history. So yeah, it's it's a big topic. It's fun. There's a lot we still don't know about it. Well, yeah, I was going to ask that. It must be exciting because there's so much more that we can learn about time, distance, and it begins to funnel into you know, why are we here or how are we here? Absolutely. And that that goes into all the big questions that astronomy gets to. Um, Yeah. And those are the big questions we ask in astronomy, like the big high-level questions. Where do we come from? How do we get here? 
and the are we alone? Are we alone in the universe is a big one. Um, and my research doesn't, you know, specifically get at that. You know, exoplanets, search for life is all really awesome stuff. Um, but you only have to go like one layer deeper to start getting into sort of existential questions <laughs> in astronomy. It's absolutely true. Well, can you turn off that existential question, that existential curiosity, if you are just home cooking or trying to go to bed? Or does it kind of linger there on some level at all times? (laughs) It kind of lingers a little bit. I mean, yes, you are able to sort of, you know, do normal things. And um, I really, I love nature. I do a lot of hiking. I like to get out, you know, get outside. Of course, a lot of times when you're in those sort of, (laughs) that that, actually being in nature sort of does prompt those those sorts of big questions. But yeah, um, I mean, I think for for someone whose sort of life work is, is focused on asking big questions, it's maybe always kind of there. So the tools that we have now compared to just 5, 15, 20 years ago to search further are, are incredible. It, it's, it, we've made some big leaps on what we can use to try to find answers to these questions. Absolutely. Yeah, the technology is changing really fast. Um, And every time we make a really big leap in technology, we're able to make sort of, you know, (laughs) a scaled leap in our understanding of the universe. Um, And of course, we just launched this awesome new telescope, JWST, on Christmas of this past year. And um, I, I do truly believe that this telescope is going to fundamentally change our understanding of the universe in, in ways we we can't even dream of yet. Dr. Amber Strawn, a native of Bee Branch, Arkansas, alum of the U of A, a NASA scientist, and a featured speaker at next month's Arkansas Dark Sky Festival. Our conversation took place at the Carver Center for Public Radio in April 2022. You can find out more about the festival at darkskyarkansas.org. From hippies in the 60s to computers in the 80s, Stuart Brand helped kickstart some of the biggest movements of the last century. It's appetite. It's willingness to be ridiculous on the way to something you think might be uh, interesting. Stay hungry, stay foolish with Stuart Brand. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. You can listen to the TED Radio Hour every Sunday afternoon at 1 on 91.3 KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Alma, and Gentry. Today's show produced inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Anna Pope, Catherine Sherlds, and Randy Wilburn. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for listening. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art invites art enthusiasts to register for portrait photography with Meredith Mashburn, an eight-week workshop designed for those 55-plus who wish to learn photography and hone their skills creating powerful portraits. Classes September 11th through October 30th. Supplies included, no experience required. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Black-owned NWA presents the Black-owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo, Saturday, August 26th from 5 to 9 p.m. at the Fayetteville Town Center. Guests are invited to come learn about and shop with black business owners from across the region. The event includes a 50 years of hip-hop celebration and more. Details available at blackownednwa.org or eventbrite.com.